0: good morning and welcome to grace covenant presbyterian church Uh, especially if you are parents uh, or family of william and mary students uh, we're we're glad that you're here and we're thrilled that your students you don't call them students you call them son and daughter right your children are here Uh, my name is ben robertson and i am the campus minister at william and mary with ruf or reformed university fellowship so um, it's a privilege of mine uh, to work with many of your children and to be here, and and we're glad you're here. And I would love to meet you uh, after the service, if you have time. I know if you have to get out of town, uh, get on out of here, but I would love to meet you afterwards. Uh, For those of you who've been around, who aren't visiting, uh, you know that we're in the middle of a series on the Psalms. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 75. Psalm 75, which is a psalm, a song, about the judgment and justice of God. Uh, most ultimately seen in uh, the, the Christian doctrine of hell. It's a heavy subject, it's a serious subject, and yet we see it uh, reoccurring throughout the Psalms, throughout the Scripture, and hear God being praised even for his justice. So let's look together at Psalm 75, starting at verse 1. It's on page 487 in your pew Bibles. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks For your name is near, we recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now with a difficult subject, a difficult concept for us, and yet your word praises you for it, for your justice, for your judgment. So we pray now that you would give us help, that you would lift us up so that we can understand and that you would give us sober and softened hearts. You do this by your spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. In 1939, C.S. Lewis was asked to speak to a group of Oxford students. And the subject he was asked to speak on was academia. In light of the war, it's 1939, Hitler was on the move. And the question was, what's the point of studying philosophy? What's the point of translating the Iliad when we all might be speaking German in a few years? And Lewis said, it, it might seem to you, coming to, coming to school, coming to university, might seem like fiddling while Rome burns. And then he goes on and he says this, I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for that crude monosyllable, hell. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know, too, that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from just a single source. But then that source is our Lord Jesus himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but it is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do... We must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. As I mentioned before, hell and judgment are not popular subjects, so I talk about them. Uh, As Lewis says here, uh, it's... It was unpopular in nineteen thirty nine, it's probably even less popular now. Well, why talk about it? As he says, the Bible talks about it a lot, and here we are in a series on the Psalms. I don't know if you've noticed in reading through the Psalms, sometimes we don't get to go into it when you're preaching just one sermon on one psalm, but the the concept of God's judgment and justice on the wicked is woven in, in and out of the Psalms all throughout, and God is being praised for it. And of course, as Lewis mentioned, Jesus spoke of it quite a bit. And it's very important. It's a big deal. If it is true that God will judge the wicked, it—it's hard to overstate how important that might be. And then finally, why talk about it? We talk about it to reach some understanding, to hopefully uh, answer some objections that we may have for how God could do this, or could a, a good God send people to hell, to make it somewhat more comprehensible or plausible. If you are coming here and you are doubting and wondering and questioning. So, you may have that doubt. How can a good God send people to hell? How could you believe, some would say, in a God who sends people to hell? Or I often hear on the campus, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. But I would simply say, if that is your objection, let's examine that just for a moment. I want you to hear it out today. It, the concept of hell is distasteful to you, and I understand that and can certainly relate to it. It's not the happiest of thoughts, is it? But not liking something is not a good standard for whether or not it is true. There are a lot of things in this world that I wish were not the case. How can you believe in a good God that gives people cancer and allows cancer to exist? And yet, I've known of many, and you have too, who have been ravished and torn apart and slain by cancer. Yet it is real. So, We wouldn't apply that idea of I don't like it or I find it distasteful, therefore it's not true in almost any other area of life. There's all sorts of things that we don't like and yet we know to be true. That we find abhorrent and yet they are real. Let's not make God in our own image, but rather let him speak into ours and remold us into his. A couple of things I would say too to that objection. First, if God is real and if he is there, if he is infinite and all wise, and to some degree, inscrutable, then we should expect him to say some things from time to time that, number one, we don't like. Do you have a concept of God big enough for him to tell you something that you don't automatically like as a 21st century century American? And two, he's going to say things that we probably don't like, and second, he's probably going to say some things that we don't fully comprehend that we struggle with, that we struggle to get our mind around. If he is infinite and all-wise, and I am clearly finite and at best a little wise, of course he's going to say some things that I don't fully comprehend, and yet I need to wrestle with and grapple with. So with that in mind, what does this text say about God's judgment, his justice, and ultimately as the New Testament expands upon hell? Uh, The first concept here is that it is just that, justice. It is justice. Verse 2 says this, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge, God says, with equity. With equity. With fairness. This concept of the judgment of God is one that is deserved, says the text. All throughout the scriptures, the concept of God's justice is not one of a capricious God who is angry and willy-nilly declaring judgment on some and mercy on another but it is something that is deserved. Now that right there probably sticks in your crawl a little bit. Do we really deserve that? Is it all that bad? I don't think that's the very thing I don't like, Ben. And yet I would suggest to you that all of us have some sort of category of someone deserving judgment, of someone deserving punishment. This idea of God laying low the proud and proud and giving justice to the humble. Um, there's an organization on, on campus at William & Mary called International Justice Mission, and it exists, of course, all over the country, all over the world. And part of what uh, the local chapter of IJM, International Justice Mission, uh, likes to do at William & Mary is just to simply raise awareness of issues of international injustice. And a couple of years ago, they did a, a series, of a full week on... Um, slavery, called it Breaking the Chain of Slavery. And some of the information they put out, which you can find this from other organizations as well, is that um, modern day slavery exists, it thrives. There are more slaves today than there were back in the period that we think of as the era of slavery in the United States. Currently, estimation, there are 27 million slaves worldwide. The market value of one such slave Anybody know? Let to guess? $40. Dinner for three at Applebee's or Human Soul. And the vast majority of that trafficking of, of human slavery, some, some of it's forced labor, the sweatshops that we hear of, but a vast uh, chunk of it is for the sex slave trade. $40. Uh, $27 million, and it's going on in our own country. Not all $27 million are in our country, obviously, but there are tens of thousands right under our own nose. Uh, we live in a cruel world. Now you think about that man who buys an 8-year-old little girl for $40, or the man who sold that little girl to him. You want something done about that? oh, we got them some behavioral therapy and they'll never hurt a soul again, so we're just going to let them. But what about her? You want something done about that? You have this idea of justice. Uh, Many of you know Matt Garrison, who's now continuing to take uh, seminary courses via distance. And one of the seminary courses he took a couple of years ago, he said the professors told he and the other students about a student that they had previously had who I believe was from uh, somewhere in Central America, who had been a part of a group of of workers who had decided that they were being treated inhumanely and had spoken to the authorities and had more or less unionized and said that we're being treated unfairly. And he was a leader of this group of people asking to be treated better. A knock on his door at 3 in the morning. The police knocked down his door, tie him to a chair, I'll soften the language because of some of the children in the room. They force him to watch while they brutalize his wife, take his twin daughters, remove the left arm and the right arm of one and the other. He escaped. They were able to get out. He was taking a seminary course in the United States. But he said to his professors, the only passages of the Bible that make any sense to me at all right now are the ones that say God will bring justice to the wicked. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, some of you know glimpses of such injustice. But I'm thankful that most of us have not experienced some of this firsthand. But we can picture it. We can see what it is like. Uh, Miroslav Voss says this, theologian, Biblical scholar, he says this. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. In other words, the only thing that kept this man from going and slaughtering people in his home village was the notion that God, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And then he says this, and this really ties into our psalm. If God were not angry at injustice and did not make a final end of such violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. Do you hear what he's saying? The scripture is saying, God says, I will judge with equity. It is not arbitrary. And though you may not have experienced this kind of injustice, you know what it's like even if you've stayed up last night watching 48 Hours Mystery, and you could tell that this woman killed her children, and then someone, you know, some cop put his hands on the evidence in the wrong way, and so the evidence was inadmissible, but it's obvious that she did, and she gets away, part of you says, no, that's not judging with equity. Something must be done, even if she never touches the hair on another person's head. This is unjust. This is deserved. And yet, the Scripture tells us that it is not harsh; it's not capricious. That God is slow to anger. The Scripture says, "Verse three: When the earth totters and its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars." Remember the earthquake a few weeks ago? This was. I was originally going to preach this sermon a few days after that. Isn't that fine? You remember how it felt, those of you who felt it? There's that moment where I, I was uh, at a restaurant and I thought I had taken a muscle relaxer that morning. I thought it was a side effect. I kind of looked around and then there were paintings sw- you know, swinging on the wall and I thought, well, that's not my prescription, right? <laughs> but it was this unsettling moment, right? Where you say, whoa, I'm not so sure of myself and my reality anymore. And now I'm not saying that um, and the text is not saying that God really had it in for Mineral, uh, Mineral Virginia that day, um, but it is saying that, that natural disasters, and specifically here the earthquake and earthquakes, are little glimpses of what could come, of God saying, the earth is tottering, but now I hold steady its pillars, metaphorically. I'm holding it steady. I'm withholding that judgment that could break in at any moment, that there is a patience, there is a waiting, and yet... There's that moment, I don't know if you I I certainly felt that little bit of woe, the fear of God, that comes in, even at that slight little tremor that we had. This idea that God is patient, and yet, that at the set time when he appoints, he will judge with e- equity, that God is rightly, justly bringing judgment and vindication on real evil, and that it is his, it is his right, and it is his character as a just and holy God to do so. Well, okay. I mean, that's okay for the really bad people, the slave traders, right? Um, the, the people killing, uh, you know, the murderers and the serial killers. Um, but what about wonderful people like you, Ben? You seem like a nice guy, and I'm pretty good too. What about us? Um, the second thing that this uh, text shows us uh, about God's judgment is, first, that it's just. And second, the concept that it gives us is, is that of our own sin, And the greatness of our own sin. Look at verses 4 and 5. I say to the boastful, do not boast. Ever boasted? And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, the battle horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. Love that image, the haughty neck. Or in proverbs, where it talks about haughty eyes and the list of things that God hates. You've probably never sold a slave or committed mass murder, but have you had a haughty eyes? Spoken with a haughty neck, this idea of arrogance, of boastfulness, of lifting up yourself, where it's, the text says, "No, God is the one who lifts up and puts down." And here's the idea of our sin. That it's worse than we think, but not only that, but the direction of it. See, haughtiness will never lead to happiness, will it? If you are haughty, if you are arrogant, then you always have to grab the first place. You always have to be on top. You can't ever be content with where you are or where others are. You have to be God instead of letting Him be so. This idea of boasting or haughtiness. Romans 1 says this, Paul writes, that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness. That God's wrath is revealed then it goes on to describe mankind and it says that claiming to be wise, they became fools. That is, they spoke with haughty necks. We spoke with haughty necks. And then it says this, that God's wrath is revealed in this, that therefore God gave them over to their desires. The wrath of God is revealed that as we speak with haughty necks and then God gives us over to our very own desires. God's wrath is demonstrated Paul says, in giving us what we want. See, our sin is worse than we think it is. The idea is that this side of hell, God is graciously restraining, our, restraining the evil, that he is holding steady the pillars, and he's keeping our sinful hearts from going as far as they could possibly go. But then the idea is that one day, he reveals his wrath by letting that go. By letting you have what... He want, And in hell, he will finally do it in full. Here's a reading from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, where he describes this. It's a little bit long, but I hope uh, you will hear it and get the idea. I think it's such a great picture. The Great Divorce is a little book by C.S. Lewis. It would take you about two hours to read, tops. And in it, it's, of course, a work of fiction, where he describes people in hell getting to ride a bus up to the gate of heaven where they are met with people that they knew before, who have come, or these spirits who come out from heaven and are trying to persuade them to think like heaven and to not stop thinking the way that they are thinking in hell. They're trying to persuade them to come in, and this woman uh, is talking about um, this woman named Pam wants to see her son Michael, who died at a young age, and she is now dead and has been in hell for some time. Michael is in heaven, and she wants to see him, and she's talking about how much she loves her son. And the spirit who's trying to persuade her to think differently has just told her that uh, even tigers have love for their cubs. That's not real love, and she doesn't like that very much. We pick up here. This is all nonsense. Cruel and wicked nonsense. What right do you have to say things like that about mother love? It is the highest and holiest feeling in all human nature. Pam, Pam. Pam. No natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. And they all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. My love for Michael would never have gone bad, not if we'd been together for a million years. You are mistaken. And surely you must know. Haven't you met down there in hell? Mothers who have their sons with them? Does their love make them happy? If you mean people like those Guthries, the Guthrie woman and her dreadful Bobby, of course not. I hope you're not suggesting. If I'd had Michael, I'd be perfectly happy, even in that town, by which she means hell. I wouldn't be always talking about him until everyone hated the sound of his name, which is what that Winfred Guthrie does about her breath. Because, of course, Michael would be nice. Don't you dare suggest that Michael could ever become like that Guthrie boy. There are some things I just won't stand for. What you have seen in the Guthries is what natural affection turns to in the end if it will not be converted. It is a lie, a wicked cruel lie. How could anyone love their son more than I did? Haven't I lived only for his memory all these years? That was a mistake, Pam. In your heart of hearts, you know that it was. What was a mistake? All that ten years ritual of grief, keeping his room exactly as he'd left it, keeping anniversaries, refusing to leave the house, though Dick and Muriel were both wretched there. Oh, of course they didn't care. I know that. I soon learned to expect no real sympathy from them. You're wrong. No man has ever felt his son's death more than Dick. Not many girls love their brothers better than Muriel. You are heartless. Everyone here is heartless. The past was all I had. It was all you chose to have. Oh, of course I'm wrong. Everything I say or do is wrong according to you. But of course, said the Spirit, shining with love and mirth so that his eyes were dazzling. That's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. That's the great joke. There's no need to go on pretending you were right. After that, is when we begin to live. How dare you laugh about it? Give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mothers and sons apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has the right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy, and I mean to have him. He is mine. Do you understand me? Mine, mine, mine. You see what Lewis is saying. A mother's love for her son, let go, turned in on itself, can become so ugly. Have you ever seen that in yourself? Ever been in one of those great divorce conversations? You see it when the other person's on the mother's side, but have you ever been in the mother's shoes? Do you hear what they said about me? Oh, I can't forgive them for that. Do you hear? Oh, how dare they suggest that I. Ever said that? I have. Can you imagine if that were allowed to grow? The idea of God holding steady the pillars is that God is holding you by the scruff of your neck, saying, no, 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 no. But can you imagine if he lets you go into that? That anger rolling into murder. Rolling into absurd self-righteousness, there is enough selfishness, anger, bitterness, enough speaking with a haughty neck and staring with haughty eyes in each of us that left unchecked and allowed to grow for 10 years, 100 years, a 1, thousand years, a million years, would become monstrous. Uh, there is a painting if you can show me where to find this, I saw it years ago, and I haven't been able to find it. There are actually two paintings: one picture of heaven and one picture of hell. And they're virtually identical. It's a group of people sitting around a table in which there is this wonderful feast in front of them. In the picture of hell, everyone is miserable. They're angry and they're bitter. And the reason is, is because they have these absurdly long arms, like these huge pipe cleaner arms with the elbows way out here, where they can't get their hands to their faces. If their arms are so long. And everyone's trying to feed themselves and this, this wonderful meal is laid out in front of them and they're angry, they're grabbing each other's arms. They're furious. The picture of heaven same pipe cleaner arms. Everyone's happy and joyful. And they're feasting. How? Because they're feeding each other. They're pouring wine into each other's mouths. They're living together, not living for self, but living for the sake of others. That's the idea. There's Yes, there's this idea of God's active judgment where he pours out wrath in a punishment sort of way. But part of that punishment, according to the scripture, is letting people have what they want. I'd rather be selfish. I'd rather be God. I'd rather speak with a haughty neck. That part of what it means to be in hell, in the words of Tim Keller, is to follow the trajectory of your soul into eternity. Well, I've spoken with a haughty neck and I've boasted... Uh, And I came to church for a little hope. Uh, Where's the hope in this passage? Where's the love? Uh, There's a hint of it here that God will lift up others. The horns of the righteous will be lifted up. And I think it's here in this idea of the cup. The cup, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, And he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. All through the Old Testament, this picture of a cup, you see it in Jeremiah 25, talking about God's fierce anger. He says, and and this cup of wrath being poured out, saying, will your sins go unpunished? No, they will not. This idea that this picture of a cup, and this phrase here of the foaming wine well mixed, it was common sometimes to heat wine and to spice it. The picture is of this very pungent, frothy, strong cup of wine, which is a representation of the wrath of God and punishment of sin. And it says that the wicked will drain it to the dregs. Well, where's the hope in that? Um, I'm going to read to you from Mark 14. This is a picture of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, minutes before he is betrayed, or perhaps hours before he is betrayed, into the hands of soldiers by his former friend Judas. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Here at this cup, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And he came again and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. That phrase, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. We often talk about talking to God, our Father, as Abba, and we think of it in the warm, lovey-dovey sense that's not what's going on here. Children cry out Daddy when they love and are, love their Daddy and are excited to see them. But my children also cry out Daddy when they're terrified. And Jesus is calling out to his Heavenly Father, Daddy, help. Everything is possible for you. Can you take this cup? And the answer is, yes, everything is possible for me, but I can't take this cup from you if you want to die for them. This frothing cup, this foaming cup well mixed, and Jonathan Edwards talks about it as if, Uh, God the Father is holding the cup under the nose of His Son to let Him get a full whiff of the the wrath that's about to come and then is juxtaposing that prayer, that request that the cup be taken from Him with His best friends, who He has asked to stay awake and pray for one hour. And each time He falls on His face in agony, begs that the cup be taken, can smell the wrath that's coming, and then He goes and sees His friends asleep. And then he comes back, on his face in agony, best friends asleep, on his face in agony, best friends asleep. And it's as if the father is saying, son, do you really want to do this for them? And his answer was yes. That will be done. God in the flesh, afraid, afraid of this cup, that Psalm 75 is telling us about. Afraid of this cup of wrath. See, part of what the doctrine of hell and the, the subject of God's judgment shows us is not just his justice and his, and his holiness, but also his love. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I believe in a God of love. Well, let me ask you this, if that's your statement. What does your loving God do about all that horrible injustice in the world? And how will that God of Love, fully deal with the wickedness even in your own heart. And finally, how much did it cost your God of love to love you? Because it cost Jesus, the God of the Bible, the cup of his own father's wrath. A couple of years ago, I was meeting with a student uh, who was Hindu, and her version of Hinduism was actually sort of a hybrid between Hinduism and Islam, and I still haven't quite pieced together all the details of it. It's sort of an interesting Mix. But we had been reading a book together on Christianity by Oz Guinness, a book called The Long Journey Home, which is a great little book if you're exploring the faith. It's a great little book. And uh, she was giving back the copy of the book to me that she had read, and we were talking about it a little bit. And there was a chapter, a chapter heading about the cross, about Jesus' suffering and his taking on the wrath of God. And she, as we were discussing it, she said, You know, In all the gods, I've read a lot of the Hindu writings and there are a lot of the gods and oftentimes the gods will come to you. They will condescend to you. They will help you. They will enter into your world. But I've never read about one that would suffer for you. I've never seen one that would die. I don't know that story. And you know, that's different about Jesus. Jesus. And that's really profound. The chapter heading in Guinness's book was, No Other God Has Wounds. What did it cost your God to love you? It cost Jesus hell. And we might say, I don't understand hell, and I don't like hell, and I don't like the notion of that at all. But as we say that, bear in mind that we look into the eyes of the one who has suffered it actually himself. Out of love for you, his sleeping disciples, so that he might call you in and so that he might lift up the horn of the righteous by bringing you into himself. How much did it cost your God to love you? Let's pray.